Welcome to the Young, Wild, Financially Free podcast, an audio experience where we don't just talk about it, we live it. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to the Young, Wild, Financially Free podcast. My name is Andrew Roberts. And I'm Matthew Teifke. Thanks for tuning in. Today... Uh, was a great episode of this podcast. I really enjoyed it. Probably one of the most established podcast guests that we've ever had on here. Mm, it was yes. a big, big win for us. Mm-hmm. Who I, was it? I think he, it was Terry Mitchell. I'm pretty sure he said the word billion and he was no. being serious. Yeah. Yes, he was. Yeah. That was amazing. So for the listeners who don't know, kind of like how I was before I got to talk to Terry, who is he? He's a real estate expert. He's done a mm-hmm. lot. He's been in a lot of different fields, which has kind of come together in this amalgamation of an expert that has been able to be on the law side, the architect side, the development side. Mm-hmm. And you put all three of those things together, plus just life in general of being passionate about business. And he's got a really cool background for real estate mm-hmm. and real estate development. Yeah, yeah. He's done some big things. He's yeah. been in Austin for, I don't know how many years. He originally went to college here, left, went to California yep. to marry his sweetheart and start a family. Realized California was no Austin, so came back. <laughs> so he came back, uh, and now he's been really doing some big things here. Yeah, I actually bought a condo from him, and we're living in it. Mm-hmm. And I bought into this vision that he sold me on over two years ago. And I met that I met him for lunch and sat down and I was like so impressed. He'll yeah. start coming out with these statistics and these numbers and these things that he's been analyzing on different markets and different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating. Like it's really high level stuff. For sure. Yeah. He's definitely a really smart guy. Also, he's got a really big heart, which is my favorite part of just learning about him was that um, it's more than just... Um, dollar bills and success to him it's uh, a lot about changing people's lives and and really changing the world uh, just to be a better place yeah and and one thing I think it's something that I want to point out is that to get him on the podcast wasn't necessarily easy the reason I say that is because I think it's so important to be consistent yeah most people just say can I meet with you you know once or twice and if you're able to be consistent and figure out a way to not be annoying, then you can do a lot more than you think by just hearing no and shutting it down. For sure. About how many times do you think you asked him to be on our podcast? I honestly, if I really had a guess, I'd say 65. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And and he, he wasn't rude by any means right. about he's it. He's a busy, he's successful got a lot, guy. Yeah, yeah. He's got a lot going on and he would you know say, hey, get back to me this time, follow sure. up this time, and I would. and. Mm-hmm. It just shows, like, hey, if you're persistent, you can make things happen. For sure. you got to run through walls. Yeah. Good lesson to learn. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Well, without further ado, here is... Um, Terry Mitchell, baby. <laughs> the man, the myth, the legend. Enjoy. Terry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad yeah. to be here. Of course, yeah. So I read online that um, you've been in Austin for at least 20 years, mm-hmm. and you look about... 21 or 22, so <laughs> where are you from originally? You've already made my day. Uh, <laughs> I was born in North Carolina. My father and mother were in the service, and uh, at six months old, we moved to Corpus Christi. 
Oh, wow. Spent uh, 12 years there, and then we moved to West Texas. My father was in the oil and gas industry, and uh, he was designing and building a pipeline. That uh, is the pipeline that now serves San Antonio with natural gas mm-hmm. back in those days. And so the city was picked because geographically. It was halfway from the beginning to the end, and he had shortened his travel time to get that pipeline installed and then operate it. Mm-hmm. And so I then came to Austin in the 70s to go to school. Um, got a business degree. Started off majoring in architecture because I think I, I like this thing called real estate, but it, uh, I was not mature enough nor had the... Uh, Probably didn't have the talent, but architect's a very hard major. Yeah, I've heard. And so I've switched to business, got out of school, worked in a bank, got a master's in business, uh, and then and, and knew I thought I wanted to be in the real estate business, but we were in the middle of a big recession. Interest rates were high. This is the Ronald Reagan era. Mm-hmm. Uh, Do you remember what the, the rates were? 14 to 17%. Wow. Yeah. And uh, uh, I can remember the second house I bought... Uh, years ago, I got a really attractive interest rate at 11.5% because mm-hmm. it had come down from 14 and mm-hmm. I did that. Anyway, so I, uh, real estate development was not happening a lot because interest rates were so high. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, But I knew I wanted to be there. I knew and, and I felt like I needed to do more. I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. I was 24 and I said, well, shoot, I'll, I'll go to law school. So then I went to law school, uh, got out and uh, went to work for large firms, uh, two large firms doing real estate development, construction, entitlements, leasing, soup to nuts across the country for large clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, ended up in California in the late 80s. Uh, met my, I was in LA, my wife was in San Diego. Uh, we started dating and do you want to live in LA or San Diego? That was an easy decision for me. I want to go to San Diego. San Diego. So, yeah. That's like Austin or Houston. Right. Yeah. Oh, no boy. offense to people in Houston, but, but <laughs> We've it said was that plenty of times. You know, here. it was just this great. It was all about young people and being on the beach and stuff. And so, uh, I moved to San Diego. We got married a year later. Two years after that, ninety-one, we had our first child, a daughter who's now twenty-eight. I was practicing law, doing lots of fun condo deals, uh, uh, hotel rehabs, uh, industrial developments, all kinds of stuff. It's a lot of fun, but the the economy slowed down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the rolling recession from the SNL crisis finally hit California, and at the same time, my wife uh, told me one day. She said, uh, "I know you're a good attorney. I think you can be a good father and husband. I'm not sure you can do both." And I said, "That's not true." And I was thinking about the monetary aspects of it—that I was about to make partner. I'm going to make a lot of money and right. all this kind of stuff. You're and providing she said, for your family. Yeah, that's and that's you know, that dumb guy. You know, that's what I thought my role was. And she sure. goes, "You don't get home till eight thirty every night. Uh-huh. You're never going to know your daughter." And that was like a knife in the gut wow, because yeah. it was absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And so I came to her about two weeks later and said. I need to change jobs. I need to find something that's different that doesn't command. And, and most of most of that hour was about my own personality. That when I'm doing stuff, I'm all in. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was about three months later that I was I got an offer to become general counsel of a builder developer here in Austin, Texas, in Melbourne Homes. If, you, if you've been around Austin mm-hmm. prior to 2000, it was a it was the largest builder in town. And so I uh, started with them. Uh, the original owner of the company sold the company in 93 to a public builder, Continental Homes, out of Phoenix. Shortly after that, I took over the land department. And so for 11 years, I developed 
residential communities for Milburn Homes. Wow. And there's probably 20,000 units, give or take, uh, right. in that process. Uh, D.R. Horton bought us in around 2000. A couple years later, I decided it was time to go out on my own and, and try to do stuff the way I hoped I could do it. And so since, since 2003, 16 years, I've been doing uh, development on my own with partners and stuff. Wow. So anyway, that's how I got here. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, there's uh, a lot to unpack there. Um, a little small connection uh, from the beginning of your story is when you were in Corpus Christi, I'm sure you know Matt went to yeah. college in Corpus Christi. Right. Right. Yeah. I do remember that. Yeah. yeah. Good times. Did you go to law school here in town at UT? Went to St. Mary's in San Antonio. Okay. And uh, it was a good place for me. It was a smaller school. Uh, they offered money. I needed money. Okay. And so that was a that was an easy decision for me. Mm-hmm. It was good. It was a good good decision. Yeah. Um, and I feel like you're so well rounded now with like you know your you have your business education background and then law school yeah. and now that playing into the the real estate industry has that has that helped? Well, it's funny at, at at my age I've been accused of. Uh, people will say, oh man, you just really, how do you, you got some architectural design background, you got some banking right. uh, analysis, you did law, and now you learn about the legal aspects of it, and how, how did you know you needed to do all that? I had no idea. Uh-huh. I'm just moving with whatever opportunity was at the time. Sure. I'm a believer in the in the big guy upstairs, and I'm thinking maybe he had a plan, but I didn't. Yeah. He knew all along, but today I do use your architectural design background a lot. Mm-hmm. I use the risk analysis, you know, stuff you develop in banking a lot, and I use my legal stuff every single day. Yeah. So it, it all comes together, and I can't say that one's more important than the other. Sure. You know, great development is about making the best compromises. Mm-hmm. You know, and what I mean by that is, let's just say you're planning a project, and and uh, it's going to be a, I'm do, I'm working I'm doing an 88 unit condo project right now. Well, if I'd had partners, I don't know on this particular deal, I could have gone up to 160 units. Mm-hmm. Well, why not do that? Mm-hmm. Well, probably inappropriate for the area. You mean too concentration, too much concentration of it. I, I'm trying to do it as an affordable project where we're selling condos from. You know, 150 to 175 thousand in an area where the median home price is 340, mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And so, you know, and and if I add more to the cost, I might not be able to get there. And so, it's a series of compromises: what's appropriate, what's what's what can give you a good return, what's great for design, what does the city need in some projects? You know, where they need some help with parkland or access or a school site or, you know, whatever can make this work. And so, great development is a series of those compromises. Right. You yeah. know. Yeah, that's so. super interesting. I'm uh, personally curious about the aspect of like working with the city. Um, when you're doing a development or you have an idea, are, are you getting involved with the city very early on and mm-hmm. kind of understanding what they would like and, and what does that process kind of look like? Um, the answer is yes. They get it, you get involved with the city early, and I will say that that depends upon the, and it's and how you do that's different depending on what city you're in. You know, presently we have projects in Austin, but we also have a large project in Kyle. Mm -hmm. And so how I engage in Kyle is different than I would engage in Austin. Mm -hmm. Uh, The project that I, that was the topic of discussion this morning is a large mixed-use community, 130 splits it, and it's along the Colorado River with three miles of Colorado River frontage. Mm -hmm. And so the city has put together a plan for their city of how they should grow. And as a general rule, it is to become a 
denser, more urban city, and there's lots of reasons for that that we should talk about at some point in time. But this particular area is designated to be a major town center, twice the size of Miller Mm -hmm. in terms of its number of people and jobs and all of that sort of stuff. And so that's there. That's the goal they want you to do. And then it's, if you're doing something in close to the city, you also then have to say what's appropriate in the neighborhood and, and, you know, go through that process of beginning to engage Mm -hmm. the neighborhood. In that particular area, there's not a lot of people around it, so it's, that's less of importance, but it is about how do you get utilities there? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, because you're along waterways, what's the floodplain? You know, how many times have you uh, uh, looked at a project and you, or looked at a piece of land and go, oh, that's 10 acres, and by the time you get through with floodplain and setbacks, it's three acres. That's a pretty big difference. Mm-hmm. And so we do get involved with the city. Sometimes that will be simply talking to staff about does it have utilities, you know, what's the roadway plan here, what, you know, those sort of things, and seeing, trying to incorporate those things in this particular project. The county is planning a road through the middle of the site to provide secondary access to a neighboring community. That's fine with us. We're willing to help them out. It would be great if it's in this design mm-hmm. so that we can develop around it. And mm-hmm. so we try to create a win-win, and so we're not asking them to buy the right-of-way. We'll say, we'll give you the right-of-way, but can you put it here and with that road there we then can can design a good community right. it's something that would would be far more beneficial in the long run mm-hmm. yeah you do you do talk to them and it, right. it, it, it kind of moves if i were down in kyle i might be calling the city manager uh or the head of head of the planning department and saying hey we're thinking about doing this what do you think mm-hmm. if that makes any sense yeah because you got to uh, work with them through the whole process so yeah we're right. about to finish up a project in Hallamant Fort phase of a project in buta that's about 130 units that's combination of some townhomes and some what we call courtyard homes but homes that sit along a little courtyard and they share this little each 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 little pod shares this little park Mm -hmm. we started with that because a landowner contacted us and said what can we do we knew what was we started to survey the market and said we think this type of product would be good to serve the community but we then went and talked to the uh at that time the director of planning assistant city manager in in it turned out that what they wanted there and what we were wanting to put there was very similar. And so we laid out some concepts and they said, yeah, we like this aspect. And then we went through the public process of getting that entitled. Mm. So, um, yeah, you have to spend a lot of time with them. Right. And it's, it's real important. I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot is made of the, of the massive conflicts that you have. You know, you go, oh, there's, those are not productive. What's more productive, or maybe, maybe I should do it the way we try to do it, is that we represent, you know, we all know, mm-hmm. you're enough in the real estate business, you know the person who buys or leases your housing product is your customer, mm-hmm. but it's also the broker that represents them in a transaction, but it's also the city because they have needs, but it's also the neighborhood. You know, right. you're going to impact them. There's going to be increased traffic. There's going to be there's going to be impacts to the schools if it's a large project. What, what are their needs and what can you do to help that, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense? Mm-hmm. And so... So like in the big project out east, during our process, we go talk, we're going to have 12,700 units. Mm-hmm. We're going to have 12,000 jobs someday. I mean, mm-hmm. so that's, a, that's a town of 30 or 35,000 people, right. you know, kind of thing. But we go talk to the school district and said, this is what the city has overall planned for this area. Now we're trying to implement that. What do we just want to let you know that? And what 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 are your needs? Mm-hmm. And they immediately came back and said we need two elementary schools and a middle school. Mm-hmm. So we've now laid out sites 
where, you know, and they gave us criteria about where they wanted to be and what would be helpful. And so we're now, you know, have laid out sites so that when that time comes, they know that they've got a school site there to serve their, you know, constituents, right. that, that sort of thing. Yeah. There's parkland. There's, mm-hmm. uh, we're talking to Capital Metro, even though it's not in their service area, being a major density node of jobs and housing, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, and it'll have more units than, than the domain, but will not have the number of jobs, but it's still very dense. Yeah. You need to have transit there. You know, people we need to get there. And so having a conversation with them about how, what do we need to plan for in the future. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to be reserving a site for a transit center and a TOD little connection where people can get, get in and out of there on transit as opposed to an automobile. Mm-hmm. So those are the kinds of things we yeah, think about. Yeah, a lot to it. Um, we've talked in the past and about your idea with density. And mm-hmm. from what I understand, it's somewhat on the, you know, pushing the boundaries of being different. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of touch on like your whole idea and what you believe in as far as like the type of product for density? Let me back up and say why, okay, the first reason, because, and I will say it's more my generation than your generation, mm-hmm. but my generation, if I ask people my age and I say, close your eyes and think of your perfect housing product, they'll think of a single family house in a nice little neighborhood on the end of a cul-de-sac because that's the way we grew up. Mm-hmm. When you hit a, a, a millennial generation, for sure, I haven't talked to many Gen Z folks yet, but the mm-hmm. millennial generation say, what's your, it's a much broader discussion. It might be urban living, it might be a single family house, it might be something else, but it's a little bit broader. Sure. It's more, much more accepted. Mm-hmm. What is going on, though, from an economic level? And I'm going to use two, two different viewpoints. Economics from the private citizen perspective and then from the government perspective. From the private citizen's perspective, and these numbers are eight months old, so they'll, they'll, they'll change, but not by a lot. Nationwide, the median home price, according to the U.S. Census, was about $245,000. The median household income nationwide was about $61,000 or so. Well, we have a disconnect, because 61, you know, unless interest rates are 2%, you're gonna be able to afford about $180,000 to $200,000 home, mm-hmm. You know, and somebody goes, well, what about putting down 20%? Anybody making $60,000 doesn't typically walk around with, you know, $50,000 in cash. You know, at least my experience doing entry-level housing, 95 to 97% of the folks are putting the minimum down. About 60%, I'm using rough numbers, 60% of the households across the nation will never own a single-family home unless they start making more money. Mm -hmm. And so it's just an overall statement. And it adjusts because you can go to places like, I looked at a small city in Oklahoma that my parents grew up in and looked in around the area and the median home price, this is a couple years old, the median home price was about 110 and I said, I found an affordable place. Mm-hmm. But then I look at the median household income and it was 32. Mm-hmm. Well, a little over half the population is never going to own a $110,000 house when their median population income is 32. Yeah. That makes sense? And yeah. so it kind of goes up and down. And so nationwide, and by the way, if you look at the trends over the last 30 or 40 years, it used to be that the average house price was about two times the average, the, the median income. Now, at least in Texas, for the large cities, it's three and a half times mm-hmm. the median income. And wow. so lesser and lesser a percentage of folks are being able to afford it. Does right. that make sense? Yes. So if you look at Austin, and you guys are going to know this more than I am, but if you look in the metro, I'm talking about from San Marcos to Gerald. Mm-hmm. The median home price is a, around three hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. You know, in, inside the city, it's four hundred. Inside of Austin, 
the median household income, and it's going up, but up until the median household income was about in the low 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, and so low 70s is about a $210,000 home, mm -hmm. you know, kind of thing. And yet we're at 300. Yeah. So if you did the math, somewhere close to 70% of our households wouldn't be able to afford the median home. Right. It's not because we're doing anything wrong. This is just a nationwide trend, and Austin is at the tip of the spear you know, it's not not at the tip like Seattle or San Diego or California have been growing fast for 40 years. We've only been growing fast for 20 years. Yeah. And so we're we're following that way. And so, but how do I, as a developer, then reach the as many people as I can? Mm -hmm. You know, you can't. I mean, if you do the math, think about the math. People say, well, we just need more government help. Well, that's that is true for a certain population that's at the very low. But just a just think about a ten thousand dollar a unit subsidy. Mm -hmm. You know, ten million dollars will be what is that? Is that ten thousand times ten thousand? So you so you'd serve ten thousand. We need twenty thousand new units every year. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't. It's a drop in the bucket, is my point being. And so we, ha how do I, as a private developer, reach more and more people by lowering the housing costs? And there's and there's really only two ways I can do that. One is to increase the density, put more units on a particular piece of land, okay. and two is to make it smaller. If you've done any traveling. You know, you go to, you know, go to the UK and the average home size is under a thousand square feet. Go yeah. to Hong Kong, the average home size is 450 square feet. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it, this is a worldwide issue. The bigger it gets, the more expensive it gets. The, the bigger a city gets, the more expensive it gets, the lower the prices. Right. Yeah. I mean, the smaller, the smaller square footage. I'm sorry, I misspoke that. So if I take a, if you take a lot, let's just say a lot today, if you could find one for $200,000, if I put one house on it, that house, the bank's going to make you build a $600,000 home, mm -hmm. give or take, at a minimum, mm -hmm. and probably more, but that's it. But if I could put six units on it, mm -hmm. well, six into, you know, 200000 is, you know, $33,000 a piece, mm -hmm. you know? And so now I have a land cost of 33000 I can't get six big units on that property, but I could probably get six 800-square-foot units on that property. Yeah. And so now I'm selling a two-bedroom condo in the in the middle of the city where you pay two hundred thousand, and I'm selling selling it for two hundred thousand dollars right. or something like that. It's two hundred ten, but that's what density and square footage will do for you. Now it changes. I have a lot of people come and say, "Well, I've seen those downtown high rises, and those are seven hundred dollars a square foot. Different construction, different. You're, you're in a different game mm -hmm. when you're with here. I mean, the construction costs for some of the new condo projects downtown are, are bumping five hundred dollars a square foot. So that's a different game. But right. I'm talking about the the one to four story, mm -hmm. you know, the one to three story kind of kind of thing. Mm -hmm. At three stories, you can do thirty units an acre. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not going to be big, but you can do thirty units an acre just to give you a little bit of framework. For me, it's looking at ways that I can create great places for people to live. Mm -hmm. Probably going to be a little bit smaller mm -hmm. than what we're used to. I read an article a couple years ago saying that the average household doesn't use eighty percent of their home. In like a you know, three or four bedroom house. Think, think about so this. That's like I mean that's and that's in America. That's right? exactly right. And so you're providing what's needed, you know. Right. But that's our consumer mentality as Americans of like we want bigger, better, more. The Mar grass is yeah, always greener. Marketing tells us that it's better if it's bigger. Right. Right. Which is that's, not the that's case. not the case right. because if it's bigger. It's going to cost you more to own it. It's going to cost you more to cool it. It's going to cost you more to operate it. So make sure that that's what you want right. because there, there is a cost at that. Mm -hmm. Think about this. In, in, the 19, in 1959, the average household size in the United States was about 900 square feet. 
and the average household size was over three people per household. Mm-hmm. Now the average household is far below three per, mm-hmm. and the average household size is like 23, 24, 2,500 square feet, depending on the year. So it's, it's, it's a mentality that we think we need that, right. and we really don't. Right. And, and, the, and the way I ask that, just and I'll, I'll, I'm going to ask you guys this. Okay. Close your eyes. Favorite childhood memory. What's your favorite childhood memory? Mine was playing baseball with my buddies. I was going to say baseball. And I, 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 you know, until I stopped growing at age 13, I thought I was going to be a professional <laughs> baseball player. You know, that was my life. Yeah. And, and I loved it. But what, you said baseball. What would be yours? Would be... Uh, mine was mowing the grass with my brother. Okay. But, but getting out, being outdoors, doing yes. outside. Yeah. No one has ever said to me, I had a great childhood because I lived in a 2,200-square-foot home. Yeah. Or my bedroom was 14 by 14 as opposed to 10 by 10. Or I had great countertops. Those are, those are things that don't affect your quality of life. Right. We think they do, mm-hmm. but they don't. Right. People, humans are, this is a fundamental thing when we develop real estate. Relationships aren't created inside your home. They're created in areas where you gather. Mm-hmm. Right now, granted that some people gather in their homes, some, but that's a planned activity to pull, you know, come over for dinner tonight, do whatever. I'll give you an example. When we, were, we, we, we helped work and plan the Austonian, that big project downtown. Mm-hmm. And it was a fun project to work on because I had never done a, a project that was, the goal was to provide the most luxurious housing in Austin, period. And so we went through and studied 60-some-odd different condo projects in North America, from Vancouver to Chicago and everything in between. And I came up with all these lists of ideas that we wanted to do, and we laid them all out, and the, and the development, the capital said, let's do it. Mm-hmm. I, I was a little surprised, because normally it's like, do you want the theater or, you know, the something else, you mm-hmm. know? And, and so we, great. And so when you buy a unit there, the average size in that project is 2,300 square feet, but there's 40,000 square feet of amenity space available to just the people that live there and their guests. Mm-hmm. And so it lives very large. Mm-hmm. If you want to go work out, you don't go to your small bedroom that has some dumbbells in it and a, and a, and a, and a yoga cushion to do setups, whatever. Mm-hmm. You go to a 7,000 square foot fitness center. Mm-hmm. You know, when you want to go swim, you go out to the lap pool and, you know, in the middle of the city, you know, swim and enjoy yourself. Walk. If you want to go watch a movie, it's a, there's a 12 foot wide screen in a theater that you go do that. And my, my point being is it's, it helps you live in that in that regard as one guy was looking at about a 2000 foot unit he said i'm not look, i'm not buying a 2000 square foot unit i'm buying a 42000 square foot unit cuz i get to use mm-hmm. all this 40000 square feet whenever i want to right. our relationships are made in those common areas not in our units mm-hmm. once you've made the relationship you might say hey come over for dinner or hey come over whatever but you really develop relationships and and to think about it when you're in college you probably had the broadest number of friends. Every classroom was a different common area. Mm-hmm. You know, if you belonged to an organization, that was another common area. Going to a sporting event was, a, you know, all these areas where you'd meet new people. Mm-hmm. As a result, you, the relationships grew. Mm-hmm. When you go to work and you go to an office in the same office building every day, you know, all of a sudden your world shrinks down because you don't have those areas where you meet people. Mm-hmm. And so my point being is as units get smaller as we provide, I actually think we can design it where people live better by building great spaces for people together. Mm-hmm. So we're working on a project right now. It's a seven-phase multifamily project, 2,500 units. Mm-hmm. And the idea is if we're going to have permanent renters, let's build a place where somebody would want to live permanently. Yeah, And so... 
12,000 square foot fitness center, two full-time personal trainers, 30 classes a week. If you live there, it's free. Wow. All right. Uh, maybe 10,000 square feet. This is all written in pencil, so it's all subject to change. Yeah. We've already realized that in the first phase, we can't build a 12,000 square foot fitness center. It's going to be 7,000 square feet, and then we'll add it later because we, the capital is, we'll have to, we, we can't spend it all at once. But think about 10,000 square feet of co-working space with high-speed printers, snacks, you know, meeting rooms, whiteboards. And if you live there, it's free. You're, you know, uh, what about uh, a daycare facility on site? What about, and now when you have 4,000 people living there, what about putting in restaurants right there? You know, and so you can now go there, pay the same amount as somebody else at the apartment project down the street, but now you have all of these amenities there where you can gather and be with your friends. Mm -hmm. So I'm hopeful that if we do this well, people will live a very high quality life because they're connected and they're living with their friends and whatever in a place that they can afford. Mm-hmm. So that's, the, that's the ultimate. Wow, okay. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I have this perception that the tiny houses were super popular and then all of a sudden they somewhat died off. And what I'm perceiving based on what you're saying is, yes, the idea was right, but those tiny homes didn't have these amenities where you were part of a bigger uh, environment. Mm-hmm. Is that Am I right in that? There is a pattern where people who will buy, uh, try a tiny home and go, my gosh, this is really small. You know, I need a little bit more room. There's, yeah. there's, there, there certainly is that contingent. I'd probably say the bigger barrier is many cities, regulatory-wise, you can't put them in there. Is it a mobile so home? Is it, is it something? I mean, it's, it's just it's a different standard, for example, if it's on wheels as opposed to being attached to the ground. And there's a whole different building code. There's a whole different, you know, and how do you connect it? How do you get water and wastewater? It gets complicated. Right. You know, I've been, you'll see me on my Facebook and I'm looking at these tiny homes and it's, I do not think in the provision of housing to the world, that's the world solver. Mm-hmm. I think there is a group of people that would like that housing type what I've been looking for is can I find a place that I can experiment with this mm-hmm. and see and, and try to put those community building activities in there that we're talking about mm-hmm. and, and see if people want to lower their housing costs and live there and see if they can do that. But there's a there's other factors than just building it. You know, if I right. build the world's best place and it's it's in the you know, it's halfway between El Paso and some other place, it's probably not gonna get a lot of demand because there's no one there. Right. You have to you know, there's a there's a balance there. There's a balance there, okay. if that makes any sense. And so I think I think you'll see more of it. We haven't talked about it, but the other reason single family is going to be less of a predominant housing type. One is just cost. My wife and I took a trip to southern France and Italy two years ago. And it was very interesting to go to these little villages and stuff. And the, and the core was, you know, no more than three stories, maybe four stories, very, very dense. Couldn't even get cars in there hardly, but it's just full. And, and the mass of population live there and they lived and actually got to meet some of the folks that we, we were introduced to some of the folks and you'd see this little 500 square foot apartment and there'd be a family of you know used to be a family of four living there mm-hmm. and now it was two but it was still a small place but everything was you know from gardens to where they worked down the street everything was close in they did have some single family houses on the hills as you go up very expensive you know mm-hmm. kind of you know, the wealthy live there, you know, if you call them villas, I don't know which, whatever, but it's a pattern that you see for generations, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. What cities are figuring out with single family housing is that the cost to operate a city, meaning the number of policemen, the number of fire, number of EMS, uh, and then the cost of operating a water system and a wastewater system and keeping a road system up when it's all spread out Mm -hmm. 
is very expensive. Right. And the revenue from property taxes and sales taxes isn't near enough to cover the cost of operating a single-family community over a long period of time. Got it. I'll give you one example. There's a website called strongtowns.org, mm-hmm. and they're the ones who have been bringing this to light. They're a nonprofit, and their whole purpose is to educate cities on how to be financially resilient. Mm-hmm. They did a study of Lafayette, Louisiana, and, and did this little analysis and if they wanted to bring the services and bring the repairs of the infrastructure up to where it needed to be, their taxes needed to go up from $1,500 a year to like 9000 mm. I go, we can't do that. Now, yeah. Well, the solution is you kind of start, you kind of need to start taking your existing infrastructure and creating more tax base with that. And so it's really the summary is sort of you go up and not out, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. And so cities are becoming aware of that now. A little city in North Dallas called Fate, F-A-T-E. When they say they're a suburb of McKinney, you know it's small. (laughs) But they they did a little analysis. It's on the Strong Towns website that they looked at their cost of infrastructure and their cost of providing services. And they, their model was, and I actually want to go meet with them and see if, you know, how's it working a year or so later, but they... They tell the city that if the potential market value of the project they're looking at isn't 19 times higher than the cost of infrastructure that they're assuming forever, mm-hmm. you're going to subsidize it someday. So just be aware of that. Mm-hmm. And you may make the decision to do it, but you better be getting higher than that in other places so that overall you're generating enough revenue. Wow, that's interesting. And so I think that's true in every city. I think Austin that's a, Austin is a very low-density city. Mm-hmm. New York is like 27,000 people a square mile. We're like Mm 3,200. You know, very low density, relatively speaking. I'm going to get my numbers off. So, Mm -hmm. but very low density as you compare it. And that's why our taxes have gone up. There's good reasons in it. It's why our taxes have gone up. When you're talking about the income and the prices per home, the median Mm -hmm. and the median household, Mm -hmm. why is it that it works that way. Like to me, it seems like if the, the prices are going up at the same time, the incomes are going up. But like, is it that because if, if the people here are making the same, is it other people coming from other areas that make more money that drives those prices up? I've got some graphs that I'll be happy to share with you and, and remind it. But, but essentially the, the, the growth, excuse me, in housing prices uh, as a nation and as a, a certainly in Austin have grown far faster than incomes have grown. Mm-hmm. It's a faster rate. Mm-hmm. I haven't checked it in Austin lately, but it hasn't gone down. But this is like 2015 or so. If I went back the previous 25 years, the compounded average growth rate of housing prices in Austin was like 5.6% per year. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's very high, right? right? Uh, but it's not sustainable. You know, what that means is in another 25 years, it's a million two. Incomes haven't grown at that same rate. And so the gap gets bigger as we go along. And people, I'll have people say to me, but that's because Austin's so hot. When it slows down, it'll go down. It'll flatten, yes. But what happens is, is when the growth stops, the economy slows. And guess what? Median income stop growing too. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't, you know, they kind of go hand in hand because they're both tied to the economy. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think in Austin, here's a little interesting statistic. If you take the center of the city at 6th and Congress and you do a three-mile radius around the core of the city, as of 2015, 29% of all jobs in our metropolitan area from San Marcos to Gerald were located in that three-mile radius circle. Mm. Now, what does that mean? That's the highest concentration of urban jobs of any large city in the United States. New York's 23%. San Francisco's 26%. 
Uh, Houston was 9%. Dallas was 8%. LA is 7%. Seattle's 19%. And so what happens is, is we have this very dense urban core, and that's basically 300,000 jobs, you know, plus or minus some. And then we say, don't change anything in this area. So economics 101, you increase demand because there's so many jobs there, and then you limit the supply of housing. Mm-hmm. And people say, well, that doesn't make sense because we have, you look at all the apartment projects that come in. Recognize that we, over the last nine years, we've averaged about 53,000 new population every year. Mm-hmm. All right, That translates into about twenty to 21,000 units needed every year. Mm-hmm. We haven't been providing three or four thousand units downtown every year mm, you know right. that is that, that just it, it's in the hundred it's a few hundred mm. and so supply is restricted demand is up and 20 something percent of our population makes over 100 grand a year as a household and a significant percentage make over 200 grand mm. and so we have a wealthy population and they say i'm not going to fight that traffic i'm not going to do that and so they come in close and buy and and bid up the prices yeah it's just it's basic it's, it's basic economic principles mm. if you will but what you're going to see change, and I think the domain is a good example, the domain is an urban center, you know, several million square feet of office, 4,500 residential units today, and it's still growing. And then across, Broadmoor is going to be a similar size, very large, and that has dispersed some of that demand. You know, you can live, you can rent there for X dollars per month and walk to work. That's a nice environment, but it's pulling away some of that demand from downtown and reducing that imbalance, mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah. It's also a transportation improvement because now you've taken all those jobs that might have been downtown and put them out there. And, and, and so Mopac didn't get as burdened or I-35 didn't get as burdened as it would have because you dispersed that. Mm-hmm. The, the city of Austin is actually pretty, they hired some good people and they actually, their plan for Imagine Austin is to put a series of density nodes around the perimeter so that we then disperse that. Mm -hmm. And so everybody has the option to live close to where you work, Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. As I was driving in, I'm familiar with that office building that's across across Mopac Mm -hmm. over there. And I can remember, I used to know a guy who was on the team that built that building 20 years ago or whenever it was. And if you lived here, you know, your commute would be 45 seconds kind mm-hmm. of thing. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this, in its own context, putting that office building there while people could complain about it, because you have a bunch of housing here, that actually is a great transportation thought process. Mm-hmm. If you do, every area ought to have, you ought to put jobs where people live and you ought to put people where jobs live. And mm-hmm. if you do that, you minimize the demand of people having to travel across town to work. Now, some people are going to do it. That's just normal. You know, if you're working in downtown, Matt, and, you're, and, and your sweet wife is working in Round Rock, you're, you're, somebody's going to travel. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of people, the whole reason you see, I mean, when Dell built their uh, community up in Round Rock, us in the residential real estate business, you know, every, every third sale was to a Dell employee around there, mm-hmm. you know, because they wanted to be close to work. And so if you do that over and over and over, you begin to reduce that, that demand so when you say about Dell, I'm thinking about that. If, I don't know if you know that immediate area right there. I feel like most of those people don't actually work at Dell now. I, maybe they did in the past, but like that's a little bit lower, you know, price, lower rent. Like right there, mm-hmm. is it because they just started making more money and then they? I would probably afford- say. I mean, we had back when I was in the production home building business, we had communities in West Round Rock, we had Avery Ranch, we had you know some communities up in that area. We had settlers. Ridge and several projects on the east side, and so that wasn't in the media. I, w- I wouldn't. It may not be two blocks away, but it may be two miles away. Right. You see what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. so it it 
it, in the general area. And, and we had a lot of communities in North Pflugerville, you know, the northern, north of downtown Pflugerville, but that area also served that employment. And that was actually a place where we got a lot of people that somebody would work at Dell and the other work downtown mm-hmm. because it was splitting that difference right. and it you know it was you see a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Can you uh, can you just kind of name all the the developments that I know you've had a lot, but uh, you don't have to do all of them. <laughs> but so the listeners know, I mean the ones I know of. Oh are wow, um, Estonian, Tyndall, uh, Austonian, the Tyndall, uh, the Denizen, and seven eight seven zero four, Gabardine out down southwest off of Brody. Avery Ranch was one of my previous company, uh, Cedar Park Town Center uh, up in Cedar Park, uh, Blockhouse Creek up in Cedar Park, uh, Cambridge Heights in Pflugerville, Piccadilly Ridge in Pflugerville, Settlers Ridge, Ryan's Crossing. That's crazy, right? Uh, <laughs> Bowerly Bar- Ranch, uh, Canterbury Trails, uh, Olympic Heights. I mean, you just, all, it was what all, you did. What was your favorite one? I was going to ask that. I think I know. That's a hard one. It's interesting Every project that I've done, I would do differently today. Okay. Not because it's a bad project, but it's because I know more. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, like Avery Ranch uh, was a project that we worked with Dick Rathgaber and, and were able to plan it, and, and, and he had a partner develop a portion, and we developed about two-thirds of it. And it was the most, it was the best-selling new home community for like five or six years running. So mm-hmm. in terms of success, you'd say it's very successful, but... It wasn't planned. It could have been planned so differently, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. It's a great community, and it's well thought of, and the schools are great, but it's hard to, you know, I would have planned it differently with more services within the community. It would have made more connections to the outside, deal, and I would have put a lot more employment there. Mm-hmm. There's there's very little employment. Yeah. So if you're going to work there, you're touching Mopac, Parmer Lane, 183A, you're touching some, something to get out there because we didn't, we didn't say, hey, we have 1,600 acres here. Why don't we plan you know, 150 acres of employment and put several million square feet here so we give people the option to walk to work, bike to work, take a two-minute drive to work. Mm-hmm. That's that's building more com- complete communities. And I would say that's probably because I was in the home building business, mm-hmm. so we weren't necessarily thinking about that. But cities are now thinking about that a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a lot of push for us to consider and think about mixed use. Mm-hmm. When I'm talking about that 2,500-unit community, mm-hmm wrapped around that 2500 community 2500 acre community is 300 acres of commercially zoned property so we think if we create a great place for people people to live and play Mm -hmm. that maybe employment would like to locate there and let their employers employees walk to work Mm -hmm. kind of thing that's thinking more as what this city will look like 20 years from now yeah kind of stuff early going back to earlier when you were talking about density um and then also kind of referencing to i mean just who you are as a person switch careers because you love your wife and your daughter <laughs> by the way is that it's only, a good decision only child <laughs> uh no okay uh that spawned two more children okay, we, now, cool. we now have three 20 oh. 28 26 and 23 all right and one grandbaby oh wow so that's Congrats. even better yeah big deal that's awesome. big deal yeah forget the children i want the grandbaby <laughs> <laughs> sounds like my mom yeah so going off of that and then like i said talking about what uh, the density stuff that you were talking about earlier um it seems like you might have uh, like a bigger goal or bigger plan um, that you kind of want to reach with what you're doing. And I was wondering if you had that nailed down or... Every city has been built by developers. Mm-hmm. And if if the developers take that responsibility seriously, then we should be thinking about all of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting that you can go look at some communities that were built and designed 
you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago, mm-hmm. and they're fabulous. They're, they're timeless. I was in Louisville, Kentucky two weeks ago or so, and we were going through old Louisville that was built 100 years ago plus, and it's like, man, they could roll this community out anywhere in the United States today, and it would be a resounding success because the principles they used were timeless. Uh-huh. It had housing everything from apartments to mansions all right together. You know, so if if you were fresh out of high school and you were going to work doing a, you know, a, just get out and start working the work, there's probably a place for you to rent right there in a, in a small unit or a granny flat or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and you could be at the other end of that spectrum being the CEO of your company and there's a big mansion for you to, to own as well. Mm-hmm. Everything in between. That is a really smart way to design a community to last forever, if mm-hmm. that makes any sense. And so... I know intellectually that everything that we build is going to far outlast our lives. Mm-hmm. I think we have a responsibility to do it. And I, I, this sounds corny, but we know we change people's lives with what we do, so let's try to do it to the best of our ability and, and improve their lives. Mm-hmm. So, and it's everything. It's from, from child care to schools to, to worship places to services in the neighborhood to great outdoor space. I'll, g- I'll give you an example. There was a project we did in... Uh, Blockhouse Creek, and we were we bought it. It had been fail a failed project during the uh, '70s, and so we were kind of starting it over. And it was of a size; it was going to need a second amenity center. Mm-hmm. And so we started planning the amenity center. And out of the blue, we get a phone call from the Leander School District superintendent. And we're up there right by their high school. We we're in the northern part of uh, where I think we we're in Leander, but right at the Cedar Park border on the northern side. And he said, "Hey, we have a group that's trying to." be a you know they've started a little swim team but they have no place to practice uh-huh. and i said well shoot my, my boss had been a competitive swimmer and i said it's pretty easy for us to put in a competition swimming pool we can do that and he said but you have to you have to heat it because nobody likes to swim in the middle of the winter without the pool being heated and i said ah, we, you know and it's like ten thousand bucks or something to do that he says and we need places to change clothes you know because they get after school they got to go over there and change clothes and so we built a small little men's locker and women's locker and got built and, and the community managed it and they high school went over there didn't think about it about two years later we get a little plaque and it, they'd placed second in state and they they sent a little note and said if you guys hadn't built this we wouldn't have had this i know from my brother being a competitive swimmer and my boss being a co- competitive swimmer if you're winning state at high school some of those kids are going to college because they swim yeah just because we took a little bit of extra time to to think about and listen to what they were saying there were probably two or three kids going to college on a swim scholarship because we had, had just listened to them. That can happen over and over and over, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yes. You know, we live in community. That's the way we're made. Yeah. You know, if you took 40 of us and threw us out in the middle of the desert, we're going to form a tribe. Mm-hmm. And some will be hunters and some will be gatherers and some will be taking care of the kids and some will be cooking or whatever, but we just form this stuff. Mm-hmm. Our job is to make sure that that happens at the best way possible. Nice. So uh, we try to cater towards entrepreneurs we consider ourselves entrepreneurs uh obviously with that comes a lot of challenges do you have any major challenges or advice advice? (laughs) i know with development that's constant right but what about not like specifically on a property or a deal but like you know something within your life that like you know you got beat down fired from a job and and you just had Mm -hmm. to keep going i i am a i am a person that that you know, believes there's a higher being, yeah, and, we do too. and and I that that's important to me. And mm-hmm. so I, part of that is I think that's what I'm called to do. Mm-hmm. Is that is that 
the word love in the in the Bible is an action verb, and so our way of showing love to our folks is providing great places for them to live and, and improve their lives. And in 2003, for a variety of reasons, I felt called to go out and start my own business, that I needed to have that freedom to do that, and it was almost as if I was getting pushed out of the nest. I didn't want to go because I had a cushy job, and I was making lots of money, and I didn't have to sign notes, and I didn't have to worry about overhead, and I didn't have to, you know, but it was for a variety of reasons I was getting kicked out of the nest. And so I did so, which was a leap of faith. I had no projects lined up. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I, I needed to go. Took a month off with my family, took a month-long vacation, had a great time, came back, and I literally sat down at my desk and go, now what? Well, within two years, I had 13 projects and 6,500 units in the pipeline, as we call it, working on, and, and uh, most of those, nine of those, 10 of those were with public builders, and public builders were, you know, they had more cash than they knew what to do with, uh, and, they, and so we could go conceive of a project that would serve this group in a really good way and then bring them in, they'd build the product, and we'd split the profit. Mm -hmm. And so it worked fine. That kept me going, but I didn't have to create a big construction department, and so in 2000. Seven, I had, we had finished four, had been successful in all four, had nine that were going to start in the next two years. Mm -hmm. The Great Recession happened. And I can tell you the moment when a public builder sat down and we were about to start construction, he goes, I can't, I can't do your deal. Mm -hmm. And he was a dear friend of mine. I said, what do you mean you can't do your deal? And he goes, uh, you know, and I, I said, you don't even have to, I'll go, I'll go borrow the money. You don't even need to borrow the money. And, I, and he said, no, you don't understand. He said, all public builders had debt, public debt, public bonds, and then they had equity. And their public bonds, because they're unsecured, which we thought on our side was great. We don't have to worry about lien releases. We would just take, make good use of the money. He said that because they're unsecured, they had very tight debt covenant, debt coverage ratios, meaning that if you had a billion dollars a year in debt service payments, most of them we had to have a billion and a half in free cash flow to, so that you had a cushion. Mm -hmm. If you didn't have that, you couldn't buy a new piece of property in the United States. Even a $1,000 piece of property, you couldn't do it. Well, this builder was a very high-quality builder. And my first thought was, when he said that, I, it, was like, it was like when you heard the Challenger happen or you hear 9-11 happen or something, you know where you were at that moment because it's such an emotional hit. I go, wow, seven, I had seven deals of public builders. I said, all seven of my deals are in trouble. You know, I just knew it immediately. And so for the next year, I spent trying to get somebody who had some money, hey, let's go try to do these. And... Uh, all, of them, all seven of them fell to the side, and then my bank decided it was time to call my notes. Hit, hit me with the chop block when I'm blindsided. I mean, it was a tough time. Yeah. And so I, I, uh, but for the grace of the big guy upstairs, I should have, I should have gone under. And uh, uh, I had a partner uh, step up during this process and, and offer to buy a number of my projects at a significant discount, but that gave me enough cash to keep going. And so... I kept going kept and kept going. So I survived about, you know, by the... By the skin of your teeth. Yeah, that's exactly right. So <laughs> today we are working on, we have about 6,000 units in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. They're completely different than they were 10 years ago because now housing, you know, if I'm going to serve the great majority of the population, it's going to be a different form. And so that's, we're doing a lot more of that. Mm -hmm. so that's cool. what we're doing. For guys like ourselves, you know, we're trying to build the management company, trying to build the brokerage any particular advice uh, I would personally love to, to do stuff like you're doing one day mm -hmm. um, but I don't really want to go work for a company you know it, it, not necessarily build these huge projects but I'd like being passionate about real estate I'd love to you know build a house start with the house you know 
be able to call myself a developer. Um, <laughs> and do you have any just general life advice or guidance for us and what we're trying to accomplish? You know, there are a lot of there are a lot of successful people that that become developers. Bill saying says, "I'll stay a developer until I run out of money." But you know, that's <laughs> that's that's you know, there, there have been a lot of successful developers, but they all they come up through different disciplines. Like mm-hmm. I happen to come up through a law and banking background. Others, a lot of them come up through the construction industry. Other ones come up through the marketing and sales side. Being on the management side uh, and then doing brokerage as well, you're going to know values. You're going to know what things cost to operate. And so I, I think you leverage those into the skill, you know, looking at, I think there's a big market for the small multifamily project in a very desirable area. Right. You know, if you, I, if you could do 50 units in, in, in close in, uh-huh. I'm just using that as an example, whether it's 10 or 20 or 50, but 50 units, you could provide a need where somebody says, hey, I can live in a nice place and pay a third of what it costs to own a home here and I can be close. I can get to work, I can do all this, I go to school, whatever the, whatever the deal is, you'll start seeing those you'll start seeing those oper- those needs and the question is then doing the oper- you know how do you make it happen right. and and a lot of people will then come up with an idea and title a piece of property and then they'll ask a developer to come I mean me when I started my business I'd go and title it get it all ready I didn't have the capital to do a you know 30 million dollar project mm-hmm. you know but I could bring in a public builder mm-hmm. and say hey I'll put in the land if you'll if you'll build it and we'll split the profits and you know in most cases I'd already designed the product or I had designed it that would fit their product that mm-hmm. I knew about and it and it worked very well and they you know they it wasn't their mainstream source of business but they didn't have to entitle it they didn't have to own the land they could just build a product and so it was it was an incremental business that they liked that was one way uh, you'll see a lot of people who really know their craft and 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 know what I mean. You guys managing this project, you know what the rents are in the area. Mm-hmm. You know you know it better than anyone else. And so if you see an opportunity where you would say, hey, I can do this, and we think the cost will be X, and, yeah. and we can rent it, you, you immediately know it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, if you, can, if you can prove it up that it makes sense, you also then can attract capital that will invest with you to do it because that's a skill that not the average, the average person won't have. Mm-hmm. And so it's just... It's baby steps, yeah. you, take, you know, you go a little bit bigger and bigger and keep doing it. That's what I've always kind of thought in the back of my mind is it starts with like finding that the piece of land, the opportunity, mm-hmm. and then the rest is just problem solving. I had an uncle that never went to college. He's now in his 80s. When he was about 30, he was a carpenter and he had been sowing his wild oats and traveling around. He finally moved back to his little hometown and, you know, kind of said, I got to grow up. And so he, he starts working on people's you know he's a carpenter building houses for other people and then he goes well shoot after a couple of years i I can do this so he starts you know going to the bank and borrowing money and starts building some homes himself and he goes well shoot i could put those lots in that's you know and so he starts putting in lots in and so 10 years into his business he was developing lots building houses owned an appliance company owned a lumber company wow you know and he but baby steps over that 10 years he could go i can do that and he just kept seeing it and he eventually sold his business, you know, in his 40s and retired uh, for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. But it, my point being is he took little bitty steps. Yeah. You can't go from zero to 100 and, and without, you know, that, that's just not normal. Right. And so, you know, the, the, the best developers that I see around are people who have, they understand what the community needs and they have developed the skills to do that particular type of deal. Mm-hmm. You know, if that nice. makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Sure. Well, Terry, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. I really enjoyed getting to know you, and I feel like we just scratched the surface. 
Uh, we could talk for hours, but um, like I said, thank you. Uh, appreciate it. That's Anything great. else we got? No, I'm just. I want to go re-listen to it because I feel like there's a lot to get out <laughs> of. There's that. a lot, yeah, a lot of good, uh, good stuff. Well, yeah, Terry, thank you. Thank, thank you, you so guys. Much. Appreciate, appreciate it. it. Talk to you later.